Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are in this great country or around the world. This is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel. And once again, we're back with another edition of All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. And as our listeners will discover uh, the idea, of course, when a judge takes the bench, the bailiff usually will set forth the all rise. But the idea of this show is if we utilize libertarian values, libertarian approaches, responsibility, we will all rise together. Today, we have an amazing guest and an amazing set of circumstances. And it filled in a lot of blanks for me because, honestly, before 9-11 of 2001, I'd never heard of al-Qaeda. I'd never heard of Osama bin Laden. And this just came out of the out of the blue, truly an act of war. And immediately I started thinking, well, well who is this? Uh, what, what, where did they come from? Who are they? Uh, how can we get in there and bring in for justice and, and everything connected to it? But I was left with a great deal of questions thereafter because soon Osama bin Laden just wasn't particularly a part of the discussion. We started talking about Afghanistan. We started talking about Iraq uh, and talking about all kinds of things that just didn't seem to make sense to me. Uh, why did we not go into, when we eventually found it, Afghanistan, root out uh, Osama bin Laden and his Confederates, who turned out to be al-Qaeda, uh, bring them to justice, uh, kill them? bring them to justice, whatever, and then get on with it, leaving the message for the world that, look, if you strike the United States of America, you are in jeopardy. You're going to, uh, we're going to come after you. But that just didn't happen. And eventually Osama bin Laden got away. Now, I hope that you agree with me, Judge Jim Gray, that it's our government, and if the government isn't working, we have no one to blame but ourselves. And I will tell you also recently on uh, the home network, there was a documentary called Chernobyl, a short mini-series in which it exposed that the once Chernobyl happened in the Ukraine with that really terrible nuclear accident problem, the Soviet government lied to the people. They, they lied to them about the degree of the threat, about the problem, and as a result, numbers of people lost their lives unnecessarily. And that was one of the reasons that in Afghanistan was one of the reasons that I believe that the downfall of the Soviet government uh, came about. But we are getting exposed to something similar, I believe, if our host's book is anywhere accurate. Uh, we have today as our guest a fellow by the name of Scott Horton. Scott Horton is now the managing director of Libertarian Institute. Uh, he has had a show on Pacifica Radio, which is uh, 90.7 FM at KPFK here in Los Angeles, Southern California area, uh, lives in Austin, Texas, and he has written a book that I find to be a revelation. It's called Fool's Errand, Fool, F-O-O-L apostrophe S, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. And he, in effect, has written this 
powerful expose of taking it from 9-11 of 2001 up to the up to the present and I've never seen a book so heavily documented so heavily footnoted and I'll tell you if even only 20% of what Mr. Horton has written is true all of us should stand up raising our our fists saying wait a minute not in my name this war in Afghanistan is illegal should never have happened and we should realize what we've been doing so these are things that we're going to go through we're going to mention numbers of kind of segments in this show uh, one will be torture one will be the commander-in-chief clause uh, another will be unlimited war necessity defense black site prisons extraordinary rendition uh, war on drugs and the rest we're going to have this scott horton right now as our guest scott welcome to all rise and thank you for being with us and on behalf of our country thank you for writing this book fool's errand the time to win the war in F. Afghanistan. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, Jim. I really appreciate that a lot. We Let me get a little bit about your background. First of all, you are the managing director of Libertarian Institute. Uh, what caused you to gravitate toward the Libertarian Institute? And what caused you to really roll up your sleeves and dig into all of this Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden, Iraq affairs? Just tell us a little bit about Scott Horton. Sure. Well, um, back in the 1990s, um, you know, I guess I had been radicalized uh, in the very end of the Reagan and Bush years uh, when, and I don't remember exactly how I first found this out. Of course, we know that this is all true now. It's, many books have been written about it, et cetera. Um, but I knew that the Bush administration, the, the Ronald Reagan and Bush administrations essentially w were involved in selling cocaine in order to pay for the secret wars in Nicaragua, which, con which Congress had banned funding for. And so here they were waging this massive war on drugs, which I know is your uh, speciality, but you know, all of this hype, I mean, I remember all through the 1980s, all of this hype about how we need all these new laws and, and, uh, and strict prison sentences to protect us essentially from poor black people dealing cocaine and fighting gang wars over the turf. And then meanwhile, the vast majority of that supply was being brought in by the very same government. And so I knew that by the time I was a teenager, essentially, that Oliver North was a dope and that essentially the whole way that they explain the way things are with the red, white, and blue, and, and every, it's a self-correcting system and all of this stuff, uh, was not really on the up and up. And then in the Clinton years, just to sum it up really quickly, there was the denial of the Gulf War illness. There was the horrible Waco massacre. There was the cover-up, essentially, of the Oklahoma City bombing and all of the neo-Nazi friends of McVeigh who helped him do it because they were all undercover informants and flip states' witnesses and so forth. Um, and so the FBI had all kinds of prior knowledge and could have and should have stopped the attack and didn't. And so then they blamed it all on one guy, essentially, uh, in order to cover their own behinds and no accountability whatsoever in the media, in the Congress or anywhere. Um, and part of that background of the 1990s of the sins of Bill Clinton's administration was this permanent war against Iraq. And at the time, I was kind of one of these New World Order conspiracy guys who thought that 
essentially it's all about building up the United Nations. And I saw the way America was treating Iraq as essentially, they, we were making an example out of them as a whipping boy for the UN. That international law says we can do this to you and we'll force all the rogue states in the world into our international system. Um, and, and with this kind of force and making an example out of them, which is a big part of it. Um, and so, and also I was interested in uh, terrorism because of, there was a cover-up of the first World Trade Center attack where the FBI had an undercover informant inside the bombing plot. He actually had the job of making the bomb. And the FBI had planned, the special agents in, uh, on the case had a plan to, like they do oftentimes now in their stings, furnish the dupes with a fake bomb with inert ingredients. Uh, but then they called off the sting and the informant left the plot and Ramsey Youssef, the real terrorist, came in and built that bomb and almost succeeded in knocking one tower over into the other in uh, February of 1993, just two days before the attack on the Branch Davidians. And so I was interested in, you know, the blind sheikh and Ramzi Youssef and that whole story. And then bin Laden, of course, had declared war on the United States in 1996 and again in 1998. But especially in 1996, a lot of American reporters went and talked to him, Western reporters, uh, English and American. Uh, CNN and ABC News went and talked to him, as well as Robert Fisk at The Independent. And I quote, actually, um, John Miller from ABC News was speaking for me at the time. I remember reading in Newsweek about bin Laden declaring war on us and thinking, yeah, you and what army? And that's exactly what John Miller said, the ABC News reporter. Um, who later became an FBI agent. He was so worried about these guys. He went and became a counter-Al-Qaeda agent for the government uh, Scott, later. Scott, well, let me stop you for a moment and, and kind of catch up. Uh, we weren't fighting in Iraq under the Clinton administration, as I understand it. That, that basically came after 9-11 with the George Bush administration. But there was the Iraq-Iran war that, I, in my understanding, we were basically feeding both of them, just being really happy to have Iraq and, and Iran fighting each other uh, for many right. years. See, Isn't that pretty much what I, it was? Well, I call it in the book Iraq War One and a Half, the Bill Clinton years. Because the okay. and this is important. I did skip ahead, so thanks for stopping me. Okay, Iraq War One was Desert Storm, right? Operation Yellow Ribbon in 1991, when the Bush administration essentially told Saddam Hussein, "You can go ahead and invade Kuwait. We don't care," and then told him, "We refuse to accept <laughs> your surrender and negotiation. We're having a war to force you back out again." Um, and they did that, but then at the end of the war, George Bush Sr. encouraged, he went on Voice of America, and the Air Force dropped leaflets that looked like money, Iraqi dinars, so they were sure to be picked up, encouraging the Shiite supermajority of the country, the Shiite Arabs, 60% of the population, to rise up to overthrow the Sunni Arab dictatorship of Saddam Hussein. And they did that. But then, just as you alluded to, they realized, oops, we are now reversing the Ronald Reagan policy of supporting Saddam Hussein. Because you're right, they did back both sides, but especially they backed Iraq to contain the Iranian revolution of 1979, that Shiite revolution. And when Saddam couldn't crush it, they at least you know, fought this terrible war all through the 80s um, to contain it. Well... 
they realized in 1991, in the aftermath of the first Gulf War, they were now importing the Iranian Revolution that they had just spent eight years containing. And they balked. And so Bush Sr. called off support for the rebels. He had promised, essentially he had implied that America would support them if they would rise up and overthrow Saddam. And then they stood back. Schwarzkopf and, and the Americans were occupying the entire south of the country. And they stood back and they let Saddam crush the uprising and killed over 100,000 people, Shia and Kurds, who had uh, taken the call to rise up. Well then, so that was a catastrophe and that became the excuse for the no-fly zones that America and Britain, and originally France, but they backed out of it. But the U.S. and the U.K. enforced over Iraq for the entire 10 years through the rest of Bush Sr. and all eight years of Bill Clinton. America flew combat sorties over Iraq from bases in Saudi Arabia that they had built up for the first Iraq war. And so all through the 80s, the sanctions stayed in the name of the hunt for the snipe of the weapons of mass destruction the whole Clinton years long. And they kept continually bombing the no-fly zones, which killed probably low thousands or even as low as high hundreds of people uh, over that time. But that's a lot of people if it was somebody you cared about. It was a huge deal to the Iraqis. And the symbol of it all was American, primarily white Christian combat forces from North America occupying the Holy Arabian Peninsula of Mecca and Medina, uh, the land of Mecca and Medina, the origin of Islam. And so this is what turned Ronald Reagan and George Bush's Afghan mercenaries, the Mujahideens that they had, had supported, the Arab Mujahideen that they had supported, who helped the Afghans fight against the Soviet Union in the 1980s. You might have seen Rambo 3 about it. Um, and, and read Charlie Wilson's War, seen that movie with Julia Roberts and them, Charlie Wilson's War, right, about support for the Mujahideen. Well, this is the policy that turned them against us. Was well, Scott, Scott, more than we, anything cannot, else. we cannot underestimate the importance of, in, the, in the Muslim world of seeing the United States in Saudi Arabia and occupying, in effect, the holy areas uh, of Islam. And, and uh, that... that in my understanding, was really almost totally behind Osama bin Laden uh, and his, he didn't care about the United States, he just wanted to get us out of Saudi Arabia. But one of the real eye-openers from your book, The uh, Fool's Errand, was that the CIA lured the Soviet Union into Afghanistan. Why? Because we wanted to give them their Vietnam. We wanted them to get just embroiled in this rather hopeless task. Understand at the time that Afghanistan is tribal. They're not really a centralized country. They have these various tribes, you can call them warlords, whatever you want, who really basically hate each other. They do not get along with each other. And the only thing that will unify those warlords, those various tribals, is when you have someone from the outside coming in and occupying their country. And so we... 
we, as you said, and I just never thought of this before or heard of it, we literally and cognizantly through the CIA lured the Soviet Union into Iraq and got them their Vietnam and actually supported Osama bin Laden and a lot of other people by giving them arms and other assistance to fight the Soviet Union. Uh, and that eventually was quite successful. Uh, thank you for that. And, and tell us a little bit more about how that happened and what the results were. Sure. So, um, yeah, just like you say, um, you know, this was the primary motive for these guys that America had supported in their help for the Afghans against the Soviets in the 1980s. This is what really motivated them to turn against the United States was America's occupation of Saudi Arabia. And as I show in the book, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, who was one of the primary architects of Iraq War II, one of the, the ringleaders of the neoconservative movement, the deputy secretary of defense in the Bush junior administration, um, he invoked this as a reason to invade Iraq. He said, listen, having all our bases in Saudi Arabia is what's causing bin Laden to attack us. So that's why we need to invade Iraq so we can get our bases out of there and move them a few hundred miles north. They won't mind that, right? And this is his thinking, but at least he's basing it off of the reality that bin Laden said over and over and over again. It's essentially the same thing as if you had combat forces from Saudi Arabia occupying your hometown, your home state. Maybe your governor is a bought and paid for little princeling, but that doesn't mean that you surrender all of your patriotism and that you're going to allow a foreign government to base their combat forces on in Southern California and then to routinely bomb Mexico and enforce a blockade against Mexico from your soil because that's their Saudi agenda to do is essentially the parallel. I'm not saying that, Judge, you would crash a plane into something, but I'm saying some Californians would. If you put the shoe on the other foot, that's exactly what it is. And then here's the deal, too. Right. As you say, the lesson of Vietnam was, boy, we really shouldn't have done that. It cost so much money, took us off the gold standard, you know, created all these financial problems and all of the turmoil at home, um, you know, all of these things. And so we should do that to the Soviet Union. We regret that that happened to us. Maybe instead of containing the Reds, we'll bait them into overexpansion. Snicker, snicker, snicker. And that was what they did. Walter Slocum coined that phrase will give them their own Vietnam. And to Big New Brzezinski, the National Security Advisor for Jimmy Carter, said, let's put this thing into action. And on July 3rd, 1979, they signed a finding that is an order to the CIA to commit to covert action, uh, authorizing them to start this Operation Cyclone in order to essentially lure the Soviets into invading in the first place. And then, which I'm not sure that's really why they did, because they had their own problems with their sock puppet commie dictator there and needed to replace him. But Part of his problem was the Mujahideen harassment um, against him. So, you know, it was it certainly seemed to be part of it. And it was definitely their motive for doing it. They said so themselves before the fact. No question about it. And as well as bragging about it after the fact. But here's the rub. OK, bin Laden learned this, too. The Taliban are a bunch of hillbillies, but Osama bin Laden is not. Osama bin Laden is a billionaire's son with an engineering degree. 
uh, who, you know, is a, a, his family are like the Rockefellers of, of uh, Saudi Arabia um, in oil and in construction. They have the single largest construction firm like Bechtel or Halliburton sized, you know, construction firm there. They had the contract to spruce up the Holy Mosque and all of this stuff. Um, these are very connected, very well-educated people, and they saw the effect of this, too. And they said, just like America said, let's give the Russians their own Vietnam, Bin Laden and his men said, let's do the same thing to the USA again. It's only been a few years. They've forgotten their lesson. And so what they did with September 11th was never an attempt to chase us away. I mean, I guess that could have been plan A, that we would snap out of it and realize that, boy, if this is the price of being a superpower, and a, and a world hegemon, then maybe it's not worth it. But failing that, the much more obvious explanation, and as they said they were attempting to do, was to provoke us into uh, a response. It's just like judo, right? It's an asymmetric attack. How does a weak group of bandits, a stateless group of criminals, essentially, hiding on the border of no man's land between Afghanistan and Pakistan, how could they bring down an empire? They sure wanted to. How could they possibly do it? And the only way to do it is to provoke an overreaction, to control the United States by getting the United States to act rashly. Now, that's not to say that Bush was naive and Cheney was naive and Wolfowitz was naive. It's to say that they were cynical criminals who exploited the crisis of September 11th to get away with blue, bloody murder, just exactly as bin Laden was counting on them to do. So well, they may what... have been his dupes, but that doesn't make them innocent. They were exactly who he hoped they were. And now look at us. After 20 years of this, um, you know, wise men, analysts, the former chief of the CIA's bin Laden unit has said that, you know, if Afghanistan was America fulfilling exactly the role that they had, that Al-Qaeda had set out for us, then the invasion of Iraq is the hoped for but unexpected gift to Al-Qaeda. Now, regime change against Saleh in Yemen, Gaddafi in Libya, Assad in Syria. And this is insane. This is the cherries and the sprinkles on top. This is essentially, you know, for all the 9-11 conspiracy theories that say that Osama worked for Dick Cheney all along, it's actually more plausible that bin Laden is the secret Freemason master who controls them all and that the Americans work for him because, and I'm joking, of course, but I'm just saying, if you want to look at who benefits fits, bin Laden is laughing in hell right now. Because well, America's you, done every single thing that he wanted to wanted us to do and worse and more so. Yes, Scott, and you quoted Osama bin Laden's son uh, who, who was saying this was beyond belief of his father that his father was just totally victorious with regard to luring us there. And of course I never did understand we transferred the 9-11 al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden actions from Afghanistan, and our immediate reaction was to go into Iraq, which was, I just never quite understood that, except that, I guess, it was Wolfkowitz and Pearl and, and Cheney's desire, basically, to, to divert that. And you made a couple of comments, because I never understood why we went into Afghanistan or did not find Osama bin Laden, bring him to justice, etc., and you made a telling comment 
in the book, which is damnable in a lot of ways. Look, if we took out Osama bin Laden, there's no need to go to war. And so we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that because that would take away our justification for expanding the war issue. And and that made sense to me in a dreary fashion, but but yeah. that, that, um, that really came out. Well, I, I think that's through. right. Um, if you look back at the Battle of Tora Bora in mid-December 2001, they had al-Qaeda cornered. And bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri both admitted later and mocked, actually, Zawahiri, mocked the Americans and said, you had us cornered one square mile, but you weren't man enough to come in and finish the job. And what had happened was you had the CIA special operators, the paramilitary forces, aligned with the Delta Force, the top-tier Army special forces uh, operators. And they had... Um, essentially, you know, recruited um, some, you know, militia guys, some local militia guys, including Gubaldin Hekmatyar, who, you know, he later laughed that he took CIA money and then helped bin Laden escape. He had been the CIA's friend from back in the 1980s. There was no real loyalty there. And... I mean, I have to say, it's not an ironclad case, and in the book I don't pretend it's an ironclad case, but I suggest that it sure seems to me like they ruined this thing on purpose because there are enough quotes from the CIA officers and the Delta Force officers who were there explaining how they had begged for reinforcements, how they had Army Rangers, thousands of them, available at the Bagram Airfield, just one helicopter ride away, and that is not far. Look at the map from just the Bagram Air Base is just north of Kabul to Nangarhar province is, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half by helicopter or something. Um, they're right there. And the Delta Force and the CIA begged and begged and begged. And Gary Bernson, who was the CIA officer in charge on scene, they canned him and brought him back in the middle of the battle. They pulled him out and sent this new guy in who, you know, was obviously even assumed the best intentions of the new guy. He was the new guy and was in much less of a position to coordinate anything. Before they had canned him, Gary Bernson, his boss, Harry Crumpton, who was running the operation from CIA headquarters, had gone to the White House, had laid out a map of Nangarhar province on the floor or the desk, and said to Bush and Cheney, the president and the vice president, here's where we are. We need more men. We have to seal off the border before they get to Pakistan. And Bush simply refused to do it. And, well, Scott Horton. Uh, Scott and then Horton, they got away. You, and then you, I know you've no. heard this one a million times. It's in the book, but your audience has all heard this a million times. Well, then they slipped across the border into Pakistan as though they just jumped into hyperspace or they crossed the state line and the sheriff has to, you know, come to a screeching halt and stomp on his hat like in an old movie or something. And yet, but we're talking about the Delta Force and we're talking about crossing the line into where? Red China? No. Our ally, Pakistan. Pakistan. And our Deputy Secretary of Defense, Dick Armitage, had already called uh, Musharraf, the dictator of Pakistan, and told him, you are going to do everything we want or we are going to reduce your country to the Stone Age. Well, Scott so Horton, there's no discussion me, here. You, you are at our uh, service. Gonna, do I make myself to, clear? And Musharraf said, this. absolutely, sir. Whatever you say, and was acting like it. And in Robert Grenier, another CIA officer's book, he explains the Pakistanis bent over backwards from day one. Whatever you guys want. And in fact, okay. they... Scott, I'm sorry, go ahead. 
Scott, I'm, I'm going to have to take a break here, but you're way over my head. You're obviously conversant about this. And again, I say to our listeners, this book that you have written, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, is heavily footnoted. And that doesn't mean necessarily just because somebody writes something in the New York Times and you cite it that it's true, but it certainly shows that it's more than just your thoughts. It's huge with regard to what you're saying and, and all of the justifications that were used. We're going to come back after these messages. We're going to talk about the legal justifications for this unlimited war type that we have been into Afghanistan and Iraq and what the results have been when we come back after this moment again on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. Talk to you in a minute. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. 
Welcome back. This is Judge Jim Gray on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray and our special guest, Scott Horton, who is the learned, longtime uh, studier and now writer of a book called Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. Scott Horton is our guest. You may result, may recall a prior all rise message that we had when we had former Congressman Tom Campbell on the show. And I was asking him, what is the justification for going into Vietnam or Afghanistan or Iraq? And you find that it is uh, basically a group from Congress abrogating their responsibility and passing these various acts, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution that allowed President Lyndon Johnson to do what he thought was right with regard to Vietnam. So we've always called that a military conflict, not a war, because there's no declaration of war. Uh, as to going into Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, it's the authorization to use military force. Uh, my goodness, that is the kind of the war power. Act that has given a president the unlimited ability to use our troops, use our money, and and actually to torture some some individuals. Uh, so those have been the results of what we have been doing in Afghanistan. And there is an argument for the commander in chief of the military. So he whatever he says he can do. I don't think that that's been gone through the Supreme Court, but it's a real difficult area that we get into. So what have been the results now of our having been in Afghanistan? Many people call it America's longest war. I think it's its second longest war because the war on drugs is even longer than that. But what has happened? We have been there for, for many years now, what on the order of since 2001, 18, 17 years, have we made any progress? And the answer is no, the country is far worse off now than it ever was before. Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. And, and what has been the results to try to get to the hearts and minds of the people in Afghanistan so that this Western power from North America can come in and, and change their way of life? Now, look, I was in the Peace Corps back in 1966 to 68 in Costa Rica. And I was the sixth group that went into the Peace Corps. The first five were there for what we called community development. I actually went in to teach high school uh, physical education. So at least I had a, a different reason for being there. But look at it this way. Talk about the arrogance. If you send in people like me, I had no particular skills, just graduated from college and went in without speaking their language particularly well, without knowing much of their culture. And I'm here to develop your community. Well, on its face, it looks pretty arrogant, although it, it worked to some degree. Transfer that to Afghanistan, where now we are the other powers. We're of a mostly Christian religion, sending in people that with M16 rifles and lots of guns, lots of tanks and lots of bombing airplanes. They're dressed like ninja warriors with with uh, bulletproof vests and that sort of stuff. Don't speak their language whatsoever. And do you think that we are going to be able to bring democracy to change the culture of Afghanistan? And the answer transparently is no. And then, of course, if our bombs start dropping, bom bombers start dropping bombs on people, they're going to equate that with us. And I know the 
idea, the mentality of the Afghans, which is the same as would be with me. I will revenge. If you killed my brother, I will, I will, from the sky, you had a drone that fired some form of missile at him and killed him. I will revenge. I will do whatever I can to bring my vengeance upon you and your countrymen and your country. And I think that's what we have seen more than anything else. So, Scott Horton, there is something you have in your book called the 110 quotient, a formula where every one so-called terrorists we take out, we recruit another 10. Is that in mm -hmm. effect what we have seen in Afghanistan? Right, that's exactly right. And look, I mean, what you're saying right there, it just goes to the universality of, universality of all this, is that what you're talking about is our reaction to September 11th. You kill 3,000 people on our soil? Well, look, we'll kill a couple of million of you. We're not done yet, is how America reacts to that. And But then, see, the thing of it is this. We started it, not them. These are, it doesn't mean they're good guys. If America's the empire, that doesn't mean that they're Luke Skywalker. They're, you know, they kill civilians too. They have adopted the exact same mentality as Bill Clinton and Madeleine Albright. The price is worth it. We can kill whoever we want to achieve our state objectives. And, you know, in the 1990s, at, at, I quote this in the book, it's from a very good source too, a very well-connected source in the Weekly Standard, saying the figure of speech, the kind of uh, cliche in the 1990s among the Pentagon's joint staff, these are the highest level planners for the joint chiefs of staff, they would say terrorism is a small price to pay for being an empire. No, pardon me, for being a superpower. That's the euphemism. That's how they put it, for being a superpower. So, and so what they meant was, eh, a truck bomb goes off here, a truck bomb goes off there, a few hundred people here, somebody hits the USS Cole, 17 sailors die. And so that, from their point of view, is a small price to pay to be the global policeman, the, the global hedgeman. Uh, what we say goes, as Bush Sr. put it. Only the thing is, uh, yeah, it blew back a lot harder than they were expecting. You know, I don't think they said that anymore after September 11th. Um, but anyway, that's the real chronology here, right, is, you know, Reagan supported these guys. Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton stabbed them in the back and twisted a knife. Then George Bush sat around and did nothing while they attacked us. He was in the, he was in the office as the leader of our security force for eight months. And, you know, so many people think he was in on it because he didn't do anything to stop it. But, you know, the real thing is, as you were saying, it seems strange that they, they reacted by going to Iraq, but that wasn't what it was, right? They already wanted to go to Iraq, and that's really the key to how 9-11 itself happened as well, is that every time the CIA came, quote-unquote, with their hair on fire, trying to warn Bush and Condoleezza Rice that there's a real problem here, well, Dick Cheney and the neoconservative hawks would tell Bush, no, 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 don't listen to the CIA. They're trying to get you distracted off on this silly, you know, Osama stuff in Afghanistan. Way off in Afghanistan, too remote to make an effective demonstration of American power. Keep your eye on the ball, Mr. President, Saddam Hussein in Baghdad. And so the more the CIA tried to say, hey, look, Osama in Afghanistan is the real problem right now, uh, the more and 
you know, there's a lot more to the story than that. But essentially, that was really the cause of, of you know, Bush essentially being repelled by that. The CIA is trying to distract you from what we're really trying to do here was the narrative. And so that was how they got caught in the first place. But so anyway, your thing about saying, hey, you attack my country, I'll attack you back, that's their same thing too. And now both sides claim that they're fighting on the defensive when... And both sides believe that, you know, the other side started it, when the reality is, is America is the empire. Saudi is the satellite. That's why bin Laden hated us, because we supported his king that he hated, King Fahd, who allowed, again, white Christian soldiers to occupy their holy land. And not, not white Christian businessmen, combat forces. You know, in 1996, this is in the book too, in 1996, Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the two men most responsible other than the hijackers themselves for 9-11 and for the coal, they bombed the Kobar Towers barracks. It was like a Beirut-type attack um, in, uh, in um, Kobar, Saudi Arabia. And who was killed? It was 19 airmen. 19 airmen were killed. That was a real message. And you know what Bill Clinton did? He blamed it on Iran and said, oh, well, they were just taking a target of opportunity from across the Gulf there to attack us for no reason. That makes no sense. And meanwhile, Judge Gray driving down the road didn't get the message on the top of the hour news that right-wing religious Saudi radicals blew up a barracks today to kill American airmen in order to send a message that they want us out of their country. Instead, well, it was all muddled by this Iran narrative, which was nonsense. Okay, which, well, Scott, you know, Scott, let me ask you... There's been so many things that it's so complicated. Things are interrelated, but you have to have a philosophy and a goal. And of the goals in Afghanistan, you know, they say, oh, we have to pacify the country. Otherwise, this could happen again. Well, that's just not been shown to be the case. You go in, you have a plan. And the way you have a plan is like former Congressman Campbell was saying, you rely upon the Constitution, which requires Congress to declare war before we do these sites of things. And if you make Congress do that, then they will actually identify who the enemy is, why we should go in and attack the enemy, who they are, where they are, and have an end game as to understanding what our goals are. We don't have any goals today, but the result, the fallout from whatever I can see, and you mentioned this a lot in your Fool's Errand book, uh, is that we have given up our ability to show the world that we're better than the other people are. We have been torturing people in uh, Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq, uh, in, Af in uh, Guantanamo, in Cuba. And I'd like to talk about the 20th hijacker, a guy named Katani, who was actually supposed to have been one of the hijackers, but got detained. Um, I don't remember. He missed a flight, something. But we have put him into Guantanamo. And we had a judge named Susan J. Crawford, who actually was overseeing his hearings and she said that he was tortured so badly at Guantanamo that she refused to refer his case to prosecution even though he was one of the actual 9-11 co-conspirators one of the worst of the worst but we have degraded ourselves our country and our standing in the world because we have shown that we torture people as well is, is that what you have found? 
Yeah. I mean, look, I, the whole thing was we, we have to do anything and everything to defend Western civilization. But I thought the whole point of Western civilization is we're trying to separate ourselves from the supposed barbarians out there. But who are the barbarians? Just because we fly high-tech B-1 bombers as we slaughter men, women, and children in their homes? I mean, the reality is far more than a million people have died in the terror wars since 2001 in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Yemen. It's completely out of control. Not one of those people really responsible for the September 11th attack. Uh, and then the idea was that, um, you know, for the constitutionalists out there, the idea was that, oh, aren't you sick of Al Gore and the living Constitution and these liberals that say that, never mind, really, the letter of the Constitution. It really just says we can do whatever we want. Well, we don't want that. We want strict construction. For example, right here it says the president shall be the commander in chief. Okay, let's just forget every other word of the Constitution. That is all you need to know. And in fact, the rest of the sentence in the Constitution is when called into the actual service of the United States, you know, brackets by the Congress. But anyway, um, the idea was that Bush can suspend any law. He can override any treaty. He can override any other part of the Constitution in order to, in the name of providing security. And, and, and that there's Scott, no limit to on his this, power. What, what you say on this just really seems to fit reality because originally it was Bush's war. Then you had Obama campaigning against it. But once he gets the White House, uh, he, in effect, accepts it as well because the politics of this are don't be shown to be weak. If you're shown to be weak, then you might lose the next election. So right. don't lose it. Be tough. And that's why, of course, Obama kept going, doing the same thing. And now the Trump mm -hmm. administration is doing the same thing. It, it becomes kind of endless mission creep, as you call it, because you don't want to be seen to be losing. You don't want to have politically that exposure. And, and, right. and it makes perfect sense to me as to why we keep doing this, because it's political. Instead, had it been a declaration of war, it would have been an entirely different equation. Does that make mm -hmm. sense to you? Yeah, no. Uh, well, I mean, the Congress is never really, they don't want to take responsibility. And and, That's and right. frankly, their policy is worse than the president more than half the time, probably, depending on the Congress. But um, on, the, on the point about torture, you know, Robert Higgs, the great libertarian economist, um, has a book called Crisis and Leviathan, where he talks about what he calls the ratchet effect, where every time there's a crisis, the ratchet gets tightened on our freedom and the expansion of government power. And then when the crisis abates, the power never reverses back to where it was. Sometimes it gets dialed back a little bit, but, you know, like at the end of World War II, they didn't go back to before the days of the New Deal. It was the New Deal permanently from then on is the biggest example of this. But another example is when Obama came in, he, on his first day in office, or his next day after being sworn in, said, I have banned torture. And that was so important because what he was saying, what he did not say was, listen, torture is illegal. It's been illegal since George Washington's general order, whatever it was, back in uh, the 1770s. And in this 
country. And I am ordering all executive departments to obey the law and to recognize that fact, something like that. He didn't say that. He essentially accepted the idea that it was within his discretion whether to torture people or not, and he had decided that for now, we're not torturing people, but it was, in a way, it was a way to not have to prosecute Bush for breaking the law, although he he wasn't going to, no matter what, um, but also as a way of preserving that power for himself and future presidents, too, that, you know what, why, why turn the ratchet back? Go ahead and accept the premise, and of course, Obama did torture people um, at Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan, and he continued the practice of extraordinary rendition. Of, of terrorist suspects uh, back to their home countries or other third countries to be tortured and killed. And well, you so, mentioned this. You mentioned this, Scott, and you 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 actually cited different cases that if you really want to have somebody seriously interrogated, send them to Jordan. Uh, if you want to have them tortured, we have this extraordinary rendition where we will actually send these people to Syria. And if you want to have them simply disappear, uh, send them to Mubarak in Egypt. I mean, we are collusive to this. This is not what America stands for from my standpoint. And all of us, to the degree this is true, and I'm regretfully feeling that it is, uh, we should stand up and say this is not who we are and it will stop. Mm. And, you know, so so here's the thing, too, is look at what a mirror image the USA is now of our terrorist enemies, too. This whole thing is murder-suicide writ large. That was the whole plan in the first place, again, was to give our leaders an excuse to exploit, to expand America's empire into the Middle East. They perceived us as already being at war against them in smaller measures and by way of their local dictators we support and these kinds of things. And they said, go ahead and bring your boys to our sand. Go ahead and go to the Federal Reserve and start printing money and buying up debt because you got a war to win. And to help to drive um, the American empire into the ground. That was what happened to the Soviet Union. It wasn't containment that beat them. It was tricking them into overexpansion. That was what the Reaganites still believe to this day. Hillary Clinton said that. There's a, there's a quote of Hillary Clinton explaining this really did help to destroy the Soviet Union. I believe that that's true. And guess what? Bin Laden did too. Again, that's why they asked us to do this. So now, all of Bin Laden's goals, not all, many of Bin Laden's goals have been accomplished by Bush, Obama, and now Trump. So that includes really destabilizing and radicalizing the entire region, full-scale regime change and sectarian war in Iraq, as well as in Syria, a whole beachhead in formerly secular socialist uh, Libya in North Africa, in the center of North Africa, Um, the radicalization of the Muslim Brotherhood from a bunch of conservative rich old guys to now a bunch of young radicals, because all the rich old guys are in jail in Egypt um, after the peaceful democratic uh, revolution and elections in which the wrong guys won. And so America and Saudi supported a coup d'etat to overthrow the elected government and uh, reinstall the merciless, murderous, torturous dictatorship there. And... um, and discredited every dictator in the region, really, uh, radicalized populations in terms of politics and in terms of religion, um, you know, deepening sectarian conflict. And, you know, the only thing really we could 
And look, constantly they're threatening, threatening regime change against the Shiite Ayatollahs of Iran. Well, as well as they try to overthrow what Assad. What you're saying Imagine here. if all of Persia was yes. turned to the kind of sectarian war that we saw in Iraq War II. That's exactly what Ayman al-Zawahiri, the butcher of New York City, wants America to do. And that is on the agenda. Our government hates the Ayatollah more than Zawahiri, the guy that actually attacked this country. Scott, and you're, you're, you're on to so many things here, and it, it's just it's extremely discouraging as a man of peace and a man of freedom and as a man of liberty to see that the allegations, and I think that you back them up, that our government is involved in this realpolitik, Machiavellian-type of activity. I want to make a few points, and then I want to talk about one more issue in the short time remaining that we have on this uh, segment. But one of them is that one of the self-perpetuations of the problems that we're inflicting upon ourselves in the world in Afghanistan uh, is that within the military itself, if you stand up within your ranks and tell the truth like, hey guys, this isn't working. We're alienating more people than we're bringing in. Uh, it is not promotion. It, it is not career enhancing. Uh, the, the thing in the military to be career enhancing is, oh yeah, we're doing great. Let's go and escalate. And, and that's inbred, just like the political system to our presidents, don't be seen as losing. So that's why we continue to pour more money, treasure, and lives into something that's not working. We also mm -hmm. have destabilized the entire Middle East area by having gone into Iraq. And by the way, Scott, and I think you would agree with this as well, the only real good thing that I can think of that came out of our going into Iraq was Muammar Gaddafi gave up his nuclear program in Libya, that he said, okay, I'm not going to do this. I've learned my lesson. What did he get for that, for having done that? Well, we destabilized him. We overthrew him and killed him. And if you don't think that tyrants like Kim Jong-un in North Korea and others are not t learning that lesson, it's working against us. But the last thing I want to bring up in the short time remaining is the drugs over in Afghanistan, that it is widely seen that something like since 2001 where where we went into afghanistan at that time afghanistan contributed something like 70% of the opium poppies that make heroin into the world's black market. And since that time, it's 90% because we've gone in there and taken out a lot of other farmers, leaving them no alternative but really to, to raise drugs. And ironically enough, we're going into the country and we're trying to assist them with regard to their water delivery systems and their transportation and their roads. And you say in the book, talk about irony, that as a result of making better transportation, they have been able better to feed the world's black market in opium, in heroin. And the last thing, because all of this is connected, you cited to us that we have these tribal leaders, these warlords who are making a lot of money from the sale of heroin. Many of them are in government. And you cited an occasion in which it was so destabilizing to have one of these tribal lords maybe under attack that we actually had United States Marines guarding his opium poppies in the field, which is just an absolute irony from my standpoint. So. What, tell us a little bit from your perspective, a little more about what is going on with regard to drugs in and heroin in Afghanistan, protected by the government of the United States of America. Mm -hmm. 
Well, again, you know, Jimmy Carter started this 40 years ago, and that uh, really the war itself, the conflict itself, is at the root of so much of this. Uh, poppy is essentially much easier to grow. Um, uh, you know, for the effort and for the water resources. And then in terms of the profit margin, because it's a banned substance, it has an artificially higher price. And it's the economics of the crisis, the permanent crisis of Afghanistan, that has essentially led to virtually the elimination of any other crop from cultivation or from, from any other major part of their economy at all. And so all sides are dependent on opium and on the taxation of opium. And so, uh, you know, guarding, uh, you know, Marines in Helmand province, guarding this or that warlord's uh, poppy field. I mean, hey, it is like that the whole war long. That's nothing. But Hamid Karzai, who was America's sock puppet dictator from 2001 through, what, 2010, um, he, uh, or no, 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 2014, his brother, Wali Karzai, was the warlord of the Kandahar province and Kandahar city. And he was the most powerful heroin dealer in the country for 10 years. And then once he was murdered, the next guy that America supported there, well, actually on that story, when they did the surge under Obama, Mike Flynn, the famous Mike Flynn, um, Donald Trump's first national security advisor. He was the right-hand man for Stanley McChrystal, his head of intelligence, in that search. And he said, we got to kill this guy. He's like Al Capone. Let's put a bullet in his head. And the CIA said, no way. He works for us. And he helps run our death squads. And he helps give us intel. And he's our guy. And you have to back off. And so they backed off. Yeah, and then Scott. after he was finally murdered, they backed, his successor was a guy named Abdul Razak, who was a ruthless murderer, torturer, child rapist, heroin dealer, the worst criminal in the country, or, or right equal to him. And remember when the assassin shot up the meeting that included generals about six months ago, and the, the commander, John Nicholson, the head general of the, of the war at that time, was almost killed. Um, and I think they say fired his gun in defense in that, you know, uh, firefight in the room there. Well, Abdul Razak was killed. He was there meeting with the head of the Afghan war. America's top general in charge of the war was sitting and meeting with the worst drug dealer criminal in all of Kandahar province because that's who holds down the Kandahar province for us. As yeah, long as Scott, he's not I'm gonna, the Taliban, I'm he's to our guy. Here. I'm going to have to interrupt because we're running out of time, but you're obviously conversant with this. Reading your book, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, again by Scott Horton, our guest, was a revelation to me. I'll end this show segment again by thanking you for going into this and again by saying, you know, you're over my head, but you certainly sound like you know what you're talking about. You document so much. And if only 20% of what you say is true, uh, it is shocking and something that we cannot tolerate. Uh, when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office as a federal prosecutor, we had a, a kind of a saying amongst ourselves dealing with 
with various people that we would turn as snitches, etc. If you get down in the gutter with dogs, you get up with fleas. And in fact, that's what's happened with regard to our involvement with Afghanistan. So there you have it. We're just touched the issue. In many ways, life is complicated, but we try to unravel it here on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray, throwing a light on this, bringing in back the rule of law, bringing back the Constitution, and holding the feet to the fire of Congress. So before we do this again or perpetuate it, let's have a declaration of war. So those are what we're talking about. We don't have all the answers, but we're sure raising the questions. Thanks, Scott Horton, for being with us. And thanks to you for listening to this edition of All Rise. And I'll talk to you again soon. In the meantime, life is good. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my thoughts that help us control.